0: Hello, this is Brian McCormick, welcoming you to another edition of the Leadership Podcast Series from the resource for leaders, leadernetwork.org. Our National Leader of the Month is Herb Kelleher, Chairman of Southwest Airlines. Herb Kelleher is the man who founded Southwest and disrupted the entire airline industry, leading to a better experience for consumers and an amazing ride for Southwest employees and shareholders. Hallmarks of his remarkable leadership include his terrific sense of humor and his strong commitment to people, both the internal employees at Southwest and customers of the company. He is a tireless worker who has adopted unique business practices to lead the success of his organization. In addition to his noteworthy leadership, he has fostered another generation of leaders by effectively developing leaders around him. For his National Leader of the Month feature, Mr. Kelleher responded to questions about his leadership in writing, and then spoke with me to respond to additional follow-up questions. Excerpts from our conversation follow. First, He responds to some questions about quotations he has offered to various media over the years. Then, he talks about the importance of a lifetime commitment to learning. Next, he offers ideas and advice for aspiring leaders in the context of how Southwest Airlines conducts business. Finally, he draws from lessons he has learned himself to offer sage advice for leaders. Now, Enjoy this month's podcast with National Leader of the Month, Herb Kelleher. Did you always know you were destined for this level of professional success? So many people cite the example of what you have achieved with Southwest when talking about you know, both leadership and organizational success. Is that something you, you knew was coming years ago when you, when you set out?
1: Oh, heavens no. No, it was just a task to be performed to the best of my ability and uh... with a collection of the best people that i could find to get it underway and i never looked at success as being objective uh... it was kind of survival from day to day as far as southwest airlines was concerned and i kept telling her people look if you serve customers internally and externally well every day, success will come don't worry about that as an objective you know just fulfill your daily responsibilities like other people, serve other people, be nice to other people, and everything else will work out for you. And size was never an objective. Okay. Excellence was an objective.
0: Sure. Now, when you say to like people, serve people, etc., and, and this kind of gets into one of the questions I was going to ask later, but I'm just curious, are those things that you could teach people to like and serve people, or did people have to come in, to joining your organization with a certain, I don't know if you'd say propensity or just a certain value or belief system to be the sorts of people you could teach, you know, how to do the specifics of of liking and serving?
1: Well, I think it's very important to choose people who have a predisposition to serve others. And it's hard to be successful if, uh, You know, you hire people that are totally self-centered and bent only on serving themselves. So I think the hiring process is is very important in that respect. On the other hand, I have seen people come to Southwest Airlines from other organizations that kind of sniff the air, you know, a little suspiciously, wondering (laughs) whether this is real. Okay. And then when they find out that it's real, they love it. Oh, I bet. So in other words, their their behavior that they have exhibited in other organizations that they've been with previously was really a behavior created by that organization and its mores, but it wasn't their basic personality.
0: Sure. Okay. One of the quotations I've read from you is, quote, if you're crazy enough to do what you love for a living, then you're bound to create a life that matters. And so... A couple of follow-up questions I have for that quote is: Is why have more people not figured this out? And then, have you always had that figured out, or was there ever a time that you were not doing what you love for a living?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it was always uh, pretty easy for me. Uh, in this sense, that if you really feel that your 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 you know your your job in life is to serve other people. Uh, then you tend to love what you're doing because you want the outcome to be good for them. Uh, Whether it's drawing a deed in the law office, trying a case, uh, making soup on the floor of the Camel Soup Company, whatever it might be, you know, it's easy to love it, I think, if you keep your eye on the end objective, which is making it come out well for your clients or those who are dependent upon you. Uh, So it was always easy for me in that respect because you want to do it well for somebody else. You know, out of an inner sense of excellence and a desire to serve both. Uh, so it's always been pretty uh, easy for me that way. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that kind of shy away, I think, uh, from from doing the things that they love. And uh, it's kind of like the longshoreman, you know, on the West Coast that wrote poetry. Uh, all of a sudden he decided he loved poetry, he loved philosophy, and uh, he became a, a noted uh, philosopher. And I think encouraging people to follow their natural bent uh, sometimes makes, makes a great contribution to their lives. We've seen a lot of people at Southwest Airlines, for instance, uh, who perhaps weren't performing uh, too well uh, in, in a given position. And, boy, you switch them over uh, to another department, uh, to another function, and they become superstars, hmm. which, which is why I think that people ought to give a certain amount of uh, uh vent you know uh to what they really like doing because generally speaking they do that well sure but that doesn't mean that you should only do things that you're comfortable with i mean if you're going to be a leader you have to undertake the difficult things uh the things that are arduous to do uh again because you want the organization and the people within it to be successful if you know what i mean right. but getting back again to the sort of servant's heart uh th- approach I mean, I did everything for Southwest Airlines practically when we started. And, uh, you know, nothing uh, was ever beneath me or uh, too uh, minuscule or too difficult for me to undertake because somebody just had to do it to make the organization get off the ground and be successful.
0: Sure. Now, uh, I guess a follow-up question that pops into my head listening to your response. Can you talk a little bit about how do you go about serving maybe somebody that you're not quite as crazy about or maybe that, you know, has created some trouble for you or something? Can you talk about that at all?
1: I'm not saying that being nice excludes being firm because I think in many cases you have to be firm, you know, with a given person that's not performing uh, up to snuff. But I think the way you handle that is, first of all, you're very open in telling them what you consider to be their deficiencies. Sure. Two, you set goals for them uh, with respect uh, with respect to improvement, and uh, in many cases, you know that that's never happened to them before. Sure. Uh, it's it's a first in their lives, and so setting expectations for them gives them an opportunity to fulfill them, and perhaps gives them a better definition of what they're supposed to be doing uh, in their job. And another thing is, I think that the the uh, idea of being The judicial in your approach of being non-discriminatory, of being even-handed, is very important. And what I mean by that is that whether you like a person or dislike a person, they're entitled to justice uh, within an organization. And so you may not like somebody particularly, uh, but you're not running around looking for excuses to get rid of them either. And when they commit an infraction, a violation of your rules, uh Then they get an opportunity for a fair hearing, like everybody else. Mm-hmm. you know eliminate the personal in your approach to people, uh, focus on the issue. I guess is what I'm saying,
0: sure, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Another quote that I've heard from you is that you at Southwest say that everybody is a leader, no matter what their job is, and I'm just curious at what point did that philosophy develop from you, and how would you say that compares to maybe the philosophies of other businesses in the U.S. today?
1: Well, it's uh really impossible for me to answer how it compares to other businesses, okay. uh, you know, because there are hundreds of thousands of them, Sure. and uh, I haven't visited them, so I don't really have any firsthand knowledge uh, of where they are coming from, uh, but I will tell you this that I realized that everybody was a leader, had to be a leader in order to have the most effective result very early uh, in my life. And uh, a lot of that really stemmed from working on the factory floor at the Camel Soup Company for six summers okay. uh, while I was going to school. And I would uh, I would watch people, and you know, no matter what they were doing, whether they were uh, unloading boxes from the truck, whether they were filling cans with soup, uh, where well, they were restoring boxes in the, uh, of soup in the warehouse, you know, just a myriad of different things that they were doing. There were some very good leaders that got everybody in their work crew to join in, you know, in a really dedicated and enthusiastic fashion. And then I noticed there were some people that, you know, everybody was just trying to stay away from them. They were trying to avoid them. Uh, they were slowing down on the job uh, because uh, they didn't like them and uh, they didn't respect him uh, even more. And I, I guess that's when it came home to me how important leadership is in any position, uh, no matter what it is, and because I watched that and I learned from it and said, hey, this is this is a good leader, uh, this is a mediocre leader, and this is a bad leader. Sure. And none of those people had management positions, you understand.
0: Mm, okay. Another question I have is one of the quotations you had chosen as a favorite quote was Winston Churchill speaking to the British people st- stating, they are the lions, I am the roar. And my, yes. My question is, why did you select that quote and what personal meaning does it hold for you?
1: Well, first of all, you know of my admiration for Winston Churchill as a leader, uh, a valiant, courageous, inspiring leader. Secondly, uh, you know, with his tremendous reputation, tremendous uh, accomplishments, uh, tremendous success, what he was saying was, hey, wait a second, I was just the front man. You know, it was the people of England that really won the war. And that's the way I feel about the people of Southwest Airlines, you know, that that I have been the roar. uh, But it's really their diligence, their good-heartedness. Uh, their dedication, their energy that has made Southwest Airlines successful. And that's why it's my favorite quote. Because it gives credit where credit is due.
0: Sure. Oh, that's terrific. I had also inquired about your favorite book, and you had mentioned that you've read so many thousands, it would be impossible to select just one. um, So I'm just wondering if there are any specific books or a group of books that you could draw attention to um I just I know people would love to to hear any recommendations you'd be willing to offer on on the types of books they should be reading.
1: Well, I I read perhaps more widely than many people do. I think novels uh, as an illustration are frequently a good place to learn mm-hmm. things and to expand the reach of your mind. And so I don't have a recommended reading list as such. But I do tell people, read about science, uh, read fiction, read history, you know, just read widely and try to synergize all these things in your own mind so that they all come together in some meaningful pattern. Uh, One of my mentors was Arthur T. Vanderbilt, who was the Chief Justice of New Jersey, in addition to doing, you know, many, many other things. Uh, He was probably the leading jurist in the United States uh, during his time. And he used to go to Montego Bay in Jamaica every year for one month. And you know what he took with him? What's that? He took a trunk of nothing but novels. Fiction. Yes. And said that was the way he both, uh, uh, you know, experienced some recreational relief and also where he got many of his ideas. And that's why I say I think that people should get over their tunnel vision with respect to reading And read about physics, read about biology, read about uh, history. And uh, all those things are meaningful. And, you know, novels sometimes give you fantastic ideas. They enhance your emotional intelligence. They uh, add to your philosophy. You know, that sort of thing. Which is in keeping with what I said about, you know, learning is a continuous process of observation and conversation. Uh, It doesn't have to be uh, classroom-type learning. Uh, you should be learning from all the people that you deal with and from watching them and talking to them and getting their ideas and and, and, and observing their behavior.
0: Sure. When you mention that lifetime commitment to learning, I, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, kind of asking you to generalize here, but I'm just curious how, how pervasive do you think that, that philosophy is to people in the United States the notion, well, the notion of committing oneself to a lifetime of learning.
1: I, I really am not sure. Uh, again, because you know, it demands inductive reasoning, and I haven't really surveyed the people in the United States, but I have the impression uh, that perhaps there's more of a feeling today uh, that learning uh, only occurs in connection with, you know, classroom instruction and reading textbooks. Sure. Uh, that uh, perhaps there's not as much learning from life as there used to be. And that may be attributable to the fact that more people in the American populace are exposed today to classroom learning and textbooks. Sure. Uh, there are more opportunities for education today, but I don't think it should ever be uh, that narrow. I'll give you an illustration of what I'm talking about.
0: Oh, that'd be terrific.
1: I really believe... And the fact that when you graduate from law school and you've got your law degree. Okay. It'll be about five years before you become a really good lawyer. Okay. Because you have to be out there dealing with clients, dealing with other lawyers, dealing with the courts, and getting a pragmatic feel, you know, for what's going on sure. before you really can render, you know, the very best advice. And learn what's important and what's unimportant.
0: Sure. I don't again (laughs) asking you to to maybe comment on something you haven't researched but could you draw any comparison to between the U.S. and any other countries when you talk about this lifetime commitment to learning I, I mean I know for example you had mentioned China and I know when I was in China for a very short time a few years ago I was really struck by the hunger that the people I met had to to you know, just really be soaking things up and, and spending a lot of time with a commitment to learning. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about any other places in the world you might, might be able to address your notion of their commitment to learning?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I think I've noticed that uh, in Asia, uh, generally speaking, there's a real devotion uh, to learning, uh, which I think, at least in the case of China, probably goes back many thousands of years uh you know to the chinese sages uh in effect and it seems to me that the performance of Asians in the united states reflects that uh because uh, you constantly read articles about them being tops and aptitude tests and uh leading uh their fields and in, in, in various different areas so i think they have a it seems to me that uh, they have an almost reverential respect for learning
0: okay you had mentioned, as a dream, job security for Southwest people for at least another 36 years, and I was wondering why, why 36 years?
1: You know what? I saw your question in that respect, <laughs> and I chuckled to myself because it does seem rather aberrational, doesn't it, <laughs> to be talking about 36 years. I was simply doubling uh, our present period of job security. Okay of 2007, we've had uh, total job security for 36 years as of this year, and I was saying, well, I hope it can go on twice as long. <laughs> That's the reason I picked 36 years.
0: Uh, makes sense.
1: <laughs> I mean, I really want it to be 150 years or more.
0: Sure. <laughs> um, with
1: rega- might be beyond my reach. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: with regards to humility because in your advice to aspiring leaders you had recommended be humble work harder than anyone else and serve your people and yeah. so i had read an article regarding humility when you had talked about your your willingness to hire people with less expertise education or experience if they possessed a great attitude and so um, yes. i i'm just wondering is that kind of the attitude the the first and foremost thing that you look for when you hire people at southwest
1: uh, yes, it is. It is their values, uh, their integrity, their dedication to serving others. That's primarily what we are looking for, and that's not to denigrate, you know, education, uh, experience, or expertise. Uh, because if someone has a good attitude, uh, with all the other things, uh, that's fantastic. But the distinction I was trying to make is that if you hire a person simply because of experience, education, expertise, and ignore their attitude, you can be making a terrible mistake uh, because it is uh, like the you know the one rotten apple uh, that can spoil the whole barrel, uh, sure. which which is why we're so attentive to that. And you know people have capabilities that far exceed, uh, in many, many cases, their historic educational attainments as an example. And uh, you take somebody with a good attitude, and they be- they can become a real expert in technology. As a matter of fact, I was congratulated by another company that had met with our technology department uh, uh, some years ago. And they said, Herb, your people are just wonderful. And I said, well, it might interest you to know that not one of them has a college degree.
0: Getting back again then to the humility and, and the hard work ethic and serving your people, I guess my question is, is there... Which of the three would you say is is maybe exhibited most frequently and is there one of the three that maybe is less frequently exhibited um by exhibited I mean maybe comes naturally to people or they're they're most apt to bring right the first day they walk in the door and and maybe need to be trained on either the least or the most
1: Well I'll tell you I think uh this is sort of a uh, maybe a little oblique approach uh, to your question, but I think humility is the most important because if, if you don't have humility, then the other two have, probably won't happen, you know, working harder uh, than anyone else and serving your people uh, because I think you have to be humble and not carried away with your own title or position uh, in order to uh, accomplish, uh, you know, the other two. Uh, working harder and serving your people. So we look for humility in that respect as maybe the progenitor of everything that we're after. I think humility is also important to learning. Uh if you're not humble about what you don't know, you're very un- you're very unlikely to learn anything uh sure. because you think you know it all, <laughs> all right. uh, you're you're very unlikely to work harder than anybody else because you think hey i'm here you know and it's title and position that are important and uh... you probably think more about serving yourself and your personal ends uh... than you do serving the people that are dependent on you and so i'd say humility uh... is is number one and number two uh... i don't know uh... you know how how prevalent that is uh, with respect to the hiring practices of other companies, for instance sure uh, but I do think uh that it's very important to Southwest Airlines, and humility is many times manu- man- manifested excuse me uh by a sense of humor and self deprecation I mean when people are willing to joke about themselves and their foibles and their mistakes uh that 's a pretty good indicator that they're the kind of folks we want
0: sure. Well, and I i mean, I would assume that it's also the kind of thing, like when you say people come into your culture and kind of sniff the air, that when they see the, the type of example and leadership that from people like yourself is established, I would think that would be more apt to make them uh, willing to let their guard down.
1: Uh, yes, yes. Now, that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, that's 100% right. Now, I will tell you the other side of it. Uh, we basically, you know, promote from within and have uh, for a good many years. But when we were starting out and expanding, uh, there were certain disciplines we just did not have at Southwest Airlines, and so we had to go outside to get them. And what happened, in many cases, is exactly what I described. You you said, loosen up, and that's exactly, that's exactly it. Sure. There were other people, however that felt rather insecure with the fluidity of Southwest Airlines. They were used to a much more uh, command and control type of structure, and they felt uneasy about not having that. And basically the way I would uh, put it is that they would fire themselves. Okay. You know, they would just be so uneasy that they would want to leave uh, because they required the security of an immense amount of structure. And that's not... That's not to criticize that. I mean, some people are that way and some people are the other way. Uh, but uh, our culture, I guess my conclusion is, our culture is also is, is, is so strong that it forces self-selection on people, and in effect.
0: Sure. Well, that's very interesting. As to describe the traits most important in a leader, you had said a savant's head and a servant's heart. And my question is, is a leader born with the two, or are they learned?
1: I think it's probably a combination of the two. Okay. Uh, that you have to be born with a, at least a latent capability and desire to be a leader. But sometimes people that you know have never thought about it, and they're exposed to it, and they say, hey, I like this, I like the responsibility of it, I like the sense of accomplishment of it and you can also hone and refine i think the capabilities of being a leader. Uh there are some people that probably you know if they're entirely negative about everything <laughs> you know they probably ought to be i don't know bill collectors or something <laughs> right. you know but i don't think they could be tremendous leaders. Uh so if you start off where you're negative about life i don't think you can be an effective positive leader. But i think that if you have an urge to lead, you can be taught uh, how to do it better. And we spend a lot of time uh, on doing that with our people at all different levels of leadership education.
0: Hmm. When you do that leadership education, I'm just curious, what are some of the things that you do to to teach that? I mean, is it that I mean you have people in your company that are leaders that are, or you know maybe do a good job that are teaching others or or mentoring them or is it that you you know it's through having them maybe read books or can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the things you do to to treat to yes. leaders?
1: I sure can. We uh, uh have classes at various different levels. Okay. Uh, for leadership for leaders in uh, different stages of development. Uh, you know people who are about to You know become a supervisor for the first time people who are about to assume you know some higher position uh, within the organization and the classes are tailored uh, to what they're going to encounter in their particular job and at their particular level of responsibility and uh, we have some basic training classes managers in training uh, where you start out with people who perhaps aren't managers but they they have a desire to be a manager, and uh, so we offer courses to them in how to be a manager and how to be a leader. We're really focused on leadership, and they do all sorts of things in those classes, including uh, acting out, including instruction, including recommending books for people uh, to read. And as a matter of fact, a lot of our uh, uh, senior officers speak to those classes on a regular basis. And also, uh, it's kind of interesting, uh, we have uh, one director who is a uh, was a, is a tremendous educator, and uh, he comes in and talks to our classes, uh, Bill Cunningham. He used to be chancellor of the University of Texas, and Bill comes in and talks, and they, they love it. They love him. And isn't that a great thing for a director to do?
0: Definitely, yes.
1: And by the way, our directors are very good. Uh, this is kind of an aside... Uh, but it is about leadership from the board standpoint. Uh, When we have any kind of company affair in in their cities, uh, in a director's city, they always attend.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
1: Oh, yeah. You have a station luncheon uh, in San Antonio, and our two San Antonio directors go. Uh, you have a uh, station party in El Paso, and our El Paso director goes, and so forth and so on and I think their participation personal participation in that respect is a great exemplar for all of our people
0: oh i would I would agree definitely another question I had asked you was about encouraging or stifling leaders and i'm just curious about how you view that encouraging or stifling um, in the current culture and climate of business in the U.S. And, I mean, based on how you just answered that last question, it, it sounds like Southwest has just continued to encourage rather than stifle leaders. Um, I guess I would say that in a lot of respects, I think Southwest is, is rare in that respect. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, there again, it's uh, really hard for me to answer because you know I haven't spent that much time with other businesses. Sure. I've been spending all my time uh, on, on on Southwest Airlines, but from reading that I've done, I think that uh, in some cases, uh, some businesses perhaps have gotten a little too hierarchical and bureaucratic for their own well-being. Sure. I th- I think there was a tendency towards that after the Second World War. Uh, you know, when we were economically dominant, didn't have a lot of global competition, and the focus was more on the inside and, uh, uh, you know, organizational issues uh, than it was on the outside because of the lack of competition. And I think, you know, I think American business has responded very well to the competition that's materialized around the globe. And part of that, I think, you will find if you look into it, is them becoming less bureaucratic and less hierarchical and flatter and faster uh, in, their, in their response time. Well, I've always said, to kind of sum it up, uh, that uh, I always want Southwest Airlines to have the alacrity of a puma.
0: I like it. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I, I've never had anyone use that analogy before. <laughs> so that's a new one for me. I like that.
1: Well, I'm glad it's something new for you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> you—you've
0: certainly—I mean, a lot of the things that you've mentioned are are new concepts, but I just had ne- never had that, so I was—I was going through in my mind that visual image.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, the big cat striking quickly. <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> oh man, we we had talked about training programs existing out there for leaders, and you had had talked about entrepreneurial centers would be good places for training leaders. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, I, I know you have the Center for Entrepreneurship, and I, I'm wondering and, and assuming possibly, would that be the sort of place that you would recommend for leaders to attend in terms of getting good training?
1: Yes, it would, and uh, I don't want to single that out you know, as, sure. as being alone, uh, because there are goodly number of such centers throughout the United States.
0: Okay.
1: But, for instance, my motivation in setting up that center was to hopefully accomplish a number of the things that we've been talking about, uh, to teach people to color outside the lines, uh, you know to, to, to think freely and creatively, not to be afraid to undertake things, to be unconventional in their thinking, I guess you might say. Sure. And uh, so I think it provides a nice flavor in that respect you know, if you get a little of that entrepreneurial exposure.
0: Right, okay. I had asked about effective leadership, and you had mentioned it, it causes people to willingly and happily coalesce in pursuit of a common and uplifting goal. And, yeah, And I'm just wondering, how does a leader cause that to take place?
1: Well, I think, first of all, you do it uh, by talking. Uh, a lot of it has to do with... Uh, Uh, You know, the kind of presentations that you make uh, to your folks and uh, whether they're inspiring, uh, which is good, or rather mundane and pedestrian, which is perhaps not so good. (laughs) Uh, And uh, also the example you set for them uh, in your own devotion to the cause, leadership by example, way he's willing to do anything I do and more. Uh, Thirdly, I think associating with your people on a regular basis uh, is very helpful indeed. Uh we have said that if you have to have a suggestion box, it indicates that you're failing as a leader because you should be talking to your people often enough that they don't have to put written suggestions in a box mm-hmm. uh That's an example, so I think that's very uh very important indeed, and that you just respect the worth of everyone in the organization uh you know because everyone uh is a superb can be a superb contributor and uh that there's no person that is uh... beneath you uh... there's no person that's less important uh... than you are and uh... creating that sense in them that they are important uh, you know in what they're doing every day and no matter what their job is if they don't do it well they're kind of letting everybody else down and you know a symbol of freedom southwest airline signature line uh, that was chosen uh... with a focus on the inside world as much as on the outside world and what do I mean by that and Southwest Airlines has brought the freedom to fly uh... to the American public and we wanted to ennoble what our people were doing in other words when you're fixing an airplane uh... putting a bag in the belly bin, greeting passengers at the door uh... uh taking reservations at the reservation center you're doing something for the good of humankind the good of society.
0: Sure. Terrific. You had said an important piece of advice you were given was don't ever give up. And I'm wondering, do you remember who gave you that advice, or is there a story that illustrates when you had to put that into action?
1: You know, I think. uh, I was thinking when you asked that question, uh, I was thinking about that. And you know what? I think it was Winston Churchill. Okay, I think Winston Churchill said, don't ever, 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 ever give up.
0: Hmm. I think. I I believe you're correct on that.
1: And boy, he was in a situation where it was essential for Britain that they not give up, and they didn't.
0: Sure. And I, I mean, just looking at the history of Southwest, I assume that especially the first number of years, there were a number of times where you had to employ that advice. Would that be cool? Oh, yes,
1: very definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, is that the truth.
0: <laughs> in the past, you've addressed the importance of athletics to your life and leadership, and I'm wondering if you can talk about your views on the impact of participation on sports teams for our next generation of leaders in America. In other words, um, is participation in organized sports a good thing, and, and why do you feel that? Well, I
1: think, first of all, I I don't say it's absolutely necessary. Uh, Don't misunderstand me, uh, because I know lots of great people uh, who have not participated in in team sports. So I'm not saying that's a sine qua non. Uh, But what I am saying is that if you have participated in team sports, the word team kind of gives away, you know, what the value of it is, because you have to learn to function as an entity whether it's an 11-man football team or, you know, a five-man basketball team or a six-man hockey team, uh, you have to kind of work with everybody else on the team if you're going to prevail, and uh, that's what I think is good about team sports. Now, I've seen a number of people in team sports who, frankly, were only concerned about their own performance, Uh, so I'm not saying that's universal uh, by any means, uh, but I do think it gives you the opportunity particularly if you haven't had it before in, in some area or another, uh, to learn how to blend into a team uh, to make the group, the team, successful.
0: You had mentioned that the best leadership is humanistic in nature, and I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit on that concept.
1: Well, the humanistic aspect of it, I think, traces back to my feeling uh... and i've joked about this you know i said that somebody said the business of business is business and i'm not sure whether it was calvin coolidge or bianca jagger uh... (laughs) because they're both kind of skinny uh, But in reality i think the business of business is people Mm -hmm. and uh... that's basically what i'm saying by taking a humanistic approach and you want to treat people right you want to treat them respectfully you want to honor them you want to give them credit and if you do that, and they trust you, they will respond with a prodigious effort for the well-being of the whole. And that's really what I meant by a humanistic approach, an emphasis on people rather than procedures, as an example.
0: Okay. Well, and and again, I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning, but thank you so much for your time today and, and your wisdom.
1: I appreciate my selection, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. It's been very interesting to me. And I'm very grateful to you uh, for the honor. And uh, I don't know whether I've done any good, but I'll tell you this: it's like kind of like uh, Willie Nelson's gravestone. You know, he said, "What did he?" Well, they asked him, "What well, he wanted Those gravestones. He said, "My his intentions were good. <laughs> well, my intentions were good too."
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. Whether well, whether they're fruitful or not could be a different issue.
0: Well, I think that. Anyone I've ever talked to would argue that they, they have been very fruitful and I want to commend you on again on the positive and, and remarkable leadership that you've provided for both your organization and, and also through as as many people as I've heard using it as an example. Um, it's certainly permeated the rest of, of the world. So Um, my commendation and and appreciation to you for for that positive leadership. And and thank you again for sharing that with me today.
1: It's a great pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: That concludes the podcast with National Leader of the Month, Herb Kelleher. Come back next month for another edition of the Leadership Podcast Series from the resource for leaders, leadernetwork.org.